All right. Good morning. Welcome to another week of being scattered together. Um, thanks for those of you who are able to be here in person today as we're continuing to test out our in-person gatherings to celebrate with Victoria for her baptism. I want to say as well a quick thank you to our members uh, who were a part of our trimesterly virtual gathering last week. Um, appreciate you taking the time and getting those votes in. We're going to get out that information and the results of that voting to the membership here uh, this coming week. Uh, we will come to a time now in our service where we're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Today, uh, finishing out the rest of this chapter, so starting in verse 17 is where we'll focus through the rest of uh, verse 20. Uh, but as we've been doing, we're going to start in verse 10 to give us the full context. So, the Apostle Paul writes this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation, and now here's where we are today, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll dive right in to this last part of Ephesians 6. Spirit of God, uh, we want to pray to you this morning uh, and in the power of the Spirit we want to come into the very presence of God and ask that now as we look into this word which was inspired by you, would you use it powerfully in our lives today? accomplish uh, whatever purpose it is that you've sent out this word today. You've already accomplished in me, and you are continuing to accomplish. God, would you accomplish that in each one uh, here today, those who will hear this message? Um, I'm trusting you, Father, to work powerfully and to do exactly what it is you want to accomplish through it. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, there are those of you I know who are feeling its absence right now and those who I know could not care less about its absence. I'm speaking, of course, of the NHL hockey season, which by now would have been well underway and, of course, thanks to COVID, is not. But whether you love hockey or hate it, watch it or don't, uh, one of the things you'll know, at least, if you've seen even a single game of hockey played, is the importance of the hockey stick in the game. 
The importance of the stick, in fact, I think it could be fairly said that even with every other piece of hockey equipment strapped, snapped, tied onto your body, without a hockey stick in your hands, you have no hope of being victorious in the game. You can't do it. Uh, That's because a hockey stick is used both defensively as well as offensively. It's how you score goals. It's how you win. And so... Um, as, as you've seen what happens whenever somebody loses their stick, maybe it's knocked out of their hands, the stick breaks as they're taking a shot. Without the stick, you know what I mean? There's, there's no chance of being victorious. But if you will allow me just to suspend this analogy just a little bit further for just another moment longer, while the hockey stick is indispensable for being victorious in the battle, being a sport that's played entirely on a large sheet of ice... It is the hockey skates that are essential for us being able to participate in the sport at all. For those sharp blades on the bottom of the protective shoes worn by every hockey player ultimately are the thing that enables all the other pieces of hockey equipment to be able to be used effectively. Hence, it's great importance as well. So, I hate to say this, honestly I do, but we are concluding today our teaching series through the book of Ephesians as a whole and through this section of the armor of God in particular found in Ephesians 6, a a deeply satisfying experience. And also, it's always somewhat melancholy for me uh, when we come to the end of a series. Maybe it's that way for you as well. Uh, This is a series, if you can remember, we began all the way back at the beginning of this crazy year. And uh, a teaching that I pray has challenged and encouraged you in your walk with God as we've examined this eternal plan of God to unite all things in heaven and on earth together in Jesus, as well as what life is supposed to look like now for the one who has been reconciled according to that eternal plan. Paul began this letter back in Ephesians 1 with the eternal hope for all reconciled believers that God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And now he's concluded the letter, telling us about the blessings of God's strength, as well as his armor by which he enables us to stand firm in this, what Paul describes as this epic spiritual battle raging around us at all times. And we've spent the last number of weeks, if you've been with us, considering both the reality of this battle as well as looking specifically at each piece of the armor. And today... As we come to Paul's last descriptions of the armor of God, I hope you already were beginning to pick up on the connection between that whole discussion about hockey skates and hockey sticks and what Paul has to say here about the sword and about prayer. For what you see in Paul's descriptions of those two things, first of all, is that we've now moved from the parts of armor that are strictly defensive in nature to pieces that can now be used offensively in the battle as well. And, as it relates to prayer, secondly, just like the blades of hockey skates on the ice, prayer is the thing that enables us to be able to use every other piece of the armor of God effectively. And we'll dig in a bit more deeply into those descriptions as we get going here, but I think Paul's point that he's making, generally speaking, and which I don't want us to lose sight of because we've spent a number of weeks now talking about the armor of God, is this. When it comes to Standing firm in the battle, to stand firm in the battle, what Paul repeatedly says is the purpose of God's strength and his armor that is not intended to be 
a solely defensive posture. It's not a solely defensive posture. That is, God hasn't, the, the armor of God is not like a bomb shelter that God has put us in the middle of the battlefield on so we can just wait out the storm of the enemy's attacks. No, it, he, he's given us the spiritual means to mount an attack as well as to defend ourselves. The, the spiritual means to, to take ground as well as to defend our own. And I pray as we come to see how our standing firm in the battle I pray we'll see that it means both of those things, an attack and a defense. As we look at now this morning, the defense and offense of the sword and the enabling power of prayer, those two things today, the defense and offense of the sword and the enabling power of prayer. So if you have closed your Bible, your Bible app, whatever, would you open it again with me to this passage? Ephesians 6, beginning of verse 17, follow along with me as we yeah, now close out our teaching series through Ephesians and consider Paul's final description of the fullness of God's armor by which we can stand firm in this battle. Okay, so let's look first of all with this, at this sword of the Spirit and talk about the defensive and offensive and offense of the sword. Excuse me, the defense and offense of the sword. So, if you look again at what Paul says there in verse 17, he says, and take up the helmet of salvation, that's what we looked at last week, and then now, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And, and the word that Paul uses here in verse 17 for a sword actually lets us know exactly what kind of sword Paul was referring to. Uh, because the word is uh, exactly connected to the Roman short sword known as the gladius. This was a sword that was about two inches wide, about two feet long. It was um, used in much faster attack. Uh, the reason it's important for us to know that is because what Paul's telling us by saying this is the kind of sword we're given is that this is a, a weapon that was used in hand-to-hand -hand combat at very close range with the enemy, like close enough that you could tell whether they brushed their teeth or how to shower that day. So this is not some far-off attack, like God hasn't given us the javelin of the Spirit, or, or like the arrows, or the tomahawk missile of the Spirit. It's this sword that was meant for close-up, in-person, right-in-your-face battle. But when you have just a little bit more difficulty, where we have a bit more difficulty is in knowing well, what Paul means by the Word of God. Exactly. What is he talking about when he says, which is the Word of God, that he says this sword of the Spirit is referring to. Uh, does Paul mean the spoken word of God? Does he mean the written word of God that we have in the scriptures? Does he mean the message of the gospel? All of which can have a good warrant to take that title of word of God. So which one does Paul mean? Well, I think the simplest answer is just to say, uh, yes. Yes, he means all of those, actually, all together. But I think a helpful way to help us think about uh, which meaning fits best is to remember, just as we said with that analogy of a hockey stick, a sword is something that's used in both an offensive as well as a defensive way. It's used both ways, right? It's something that's used to attack the enemy, but it can also be used to defend or, or parry the attacks of the enemy. And I think so then it's an understanding of how it is you're using this sword specifically that different meanings tend to come to the forefront. So, for example, if you look in verses 19 and 20, 
where Paul is asking for prayer. You see there, he's asking for the church to pray that he'll be able to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. I think what he has in mind there is this trial that's coming up that he's awaiting before Caesar, which he's under house arrest for right now. He's waiting for this trial and he's saying, as I go to that, pray that I'll be able to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The hope being that the Spirit will so empower his proclamation of the gospel, his proclamation of the word of God, that hopefully those who hear it, perhaps even the emperor himself, would come to a saving faith in Jesus. Now yes, Paul writes in Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, but that doesn't mean that Paul's plan is to get up on the witness stand in his trial, and when he's asked a question, say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless, and just, and just quote the entire Old Testament scriptures. No, right? That's not his plan. His plan is to present a summary of the teaching of the scriptures, culminating in the death and resurrection of Jesus, a.k.a. the gospel. So that's why we could say the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, is the proclamation of the word of God, which is why Romans 1.16, that famous verse, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. But think about that. Whether it's somebody hearing the message of the gospel and coming to faith in Jesus or somebody being reminded of the message of the gospel and growing in their faith, um, overcoming some sin that they've been struggling with, whatever it is, that's, a, that's an offensive action against the kingdom of darkness, right? You are taking back ground formerly held by the enemy and it comes as a result of using the sword in this way, in this offensive attacking way. But... On the other side, I think a classic example of the sword being used in a defensive way is what we see from Jesus himself. Matthew 4, when Jesus is led out into the wilderness for 40 days, he's tempted by the devil. And in each one of the Satan's temptations, Jesus blocks or, or parries Satan's attacks with the words, it is written, and then quotes some relevant passage of the Old Testament scriptures. He's defending against the enemy's attacks with the written word of God. And how interesting that Jesus himself is referred to as the word. But, so clearly what's, what we're seeing is that context, the intended use of the word of God, the intended use of the sword, determines how we understand the word of God, which way we're using it, defensively or offensively. But as Clinton Arnold notes in his commentary, he says, there really is no compelling reason to be forced to choose between these two options, offensive or defensive action. The language of this text, he says, equally supports both. But then, okay, so then what does taking up the sword of the Spirit look like in 2020? That's first century. Great. What does it look like to take up the sword of the Spirit real time today? Great question. Well, but I think before you answer that question, the first question you need to be able to answer for yourself is this. Do you really believe that this unseen spiritual battle that Paul's been telling us about in verse 12 in particular, do you believe that's actually going on right now? Is that a reality that's actually happening real time right now? And the reason you need to be able to answer that question is because if you would say, well, no, or probably no, then the answer that means you're never going to put in the effort that's required to, to handle this sword effectively. You'll never put in the effort. And, and listen, 
That's not me saying, okay, so everybody, starting today, everyone's got to become a pastor, a theologian, a seminary professor. No, right? Like, think about the Roman military. In the Roman military, that Roman soldier was proficient at using his gladius um, in order to be able to fight in the battle. But that didn't mean that every soldier was also a trainer. He just had to become more and more confident and, and proficient in using his sword so that when he got out on the battlefield, he'd be able to fight effectively. And so here, in the same way that I need to believe the doctor is actually true and right when he tells me I've got a dangerously high cholesterol level before I do the hard work of actually changing my diet, same thing here. I need to believe the Bible when it says that there's this spiritual battle going on all around me, or I'm never going to be able to take the necessary steps to become proficient with the one offensive weapon that God has given us with which to fight. But let's assume that you do believe. Let's assume you're saying, no, I'm with you. Uh, I know there's a spiritual battle going on around. I've experienced it. How do I now take up the sword of the Spirit today? What does that look like? Well, Tim Keller has a great kind of summary of what taking up the sword of the Spirit looks like. He says this, quote, Taking up the sword of the Spirit looks like this, to know the Word of God so well and to understand its practical implications so well that it can be used on the spot. Let me say that again. To know the Word of God so well and to understand the practical implications so well that you could use it on the spot. But then, to which he helpfully or maybe terrifyingly adds, this is not something that you can do tonight. I love that. So you can't say, okay, I'm going home, and now tonight, by tomorrow morning, I am going to be taking up the sword of the Spirit and ready to go. No, no, right? Like anything that's worth doing, learning to become proficient with the sword of the Spirit is going to involve an investment of time, of energy, of focus, and in a variety of different ways. So, like what? Well, one of them being what you're doing right now. If you're sitting here, if you're, you're watching this online, being part of a church gathering and sitting under the teaching of the Word. That's, that's one of the ways that we become more proficient in using the sword of the Spirit. Congratulations. Checkbox. You've already done one. Uh, another way is to be part of a home group gathering or a Bible study with friends. Um, you can grow by making some time each day to spend time in God's Word and meditating in God's Word and committing passages, certain passages that are meaningful and helpful to you, to memory. These are some of the simple ways that we grow in proficiency in using the sword of the Spirit. And then, as you become more and more proficient with the sword, then you'll find that your ability to stand firm in the battle increases. Now I'm more able to stand firm in the battle because my proficiency with the sword is better. I'm, I'm, I'm more proficient at sharing the message of the, of the gospel. I'm more confident, not in a brash way, but just uh, I'm more intentional and able to apply the message of the gospel to my friends, to people that I'm ministering to. I become more proficient that way. Uh, when I've sinned in some way and the devil's condemning attacks are coming against me, you could, God could never accept you now. Look at what you did. I can strike back now with, it is written. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is no condemnation. Yes, this sin is grievous to God, but it has been covered by the blood of Jesus. I strike back with that. Or maybe on the other side, maybe I start to become proud and, and self-righteous. I start judging other people when they're struggling with different sins. Now, all of a sudden, in that moment of pride, I can strike back with, wait a minute. It is written, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. 
I need to be much more gracious with other people because it's only the grace of God that saved me. When a friend is struggling, they're beaten down, they're, they're feeling alone and abandoned by God, I now have some of his precious promises of his love, of his care, of his faithfulness to share with them in that moment. Uh, for me personally, a way that I apply this at times and, and become more proficient with using God's word is at times when the enemy likes to bring up my past, likes to remind me of who I was before I knew Jesus so that all these feelings of guilt and, and shame and inadequacy, how could I ever lead a family? How could I ever lead a church? Look at who you were. And those feelings are just overwhelming. All of a sudden, in the midst of that heat of that battle, I can say, wait a minute. It is written, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what it looks like. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you have those verses memorized. Maybe you're just more proficient. You're faster at being able to find them when you open your Bible. Whatever it is, the point is, now into every offensive or defensive situation in the battle, you now take this sword of the Spirit with more and more confidence with you. You take it with you everywhere you go, fighting back against the kingdom of darkness that rages against you with greater and greater confidence and effectiveness and taking back more and more ground for the kingdom of God as his ministers of reconciliation. That's the point of what's going on here. The only qualifying thing that I would just add in saying that, and, and listen, I'm not saying this from any kind of moral high ground. I'm saying this as one failure to other failures. To always remember in your growing proficiency with the sword of the Spirit what Paul says in verse 12 of Ephesians 6 here about who it is that we're supposed to be fighting against. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. To remember that as we become more proficient because time and time again, far too often, we see the word of God being used to swing at flesh and blood instead of at the spiritual forces of evil. And I'm not saying that that doesn't mean that the enemy can't manifest himself in the actions of other people, but may our reputation as God's people, may what we're known for as God's people be those who use the word of God to defend others, who use the word of God to, to heal and to build up others, as opposed to those who use the word of God to debate and argue with people, to cut other people down or to destroy them. So, so much more that I'd want to say there. But that is the defense and offense of the sword. The last thing I want to look at now together with you is what Paul says about the enabling power of prayer. The enabling power of prayer. Now, I don't know if it's the same way for you. I won't speak for you. But as I read through Paul's teaching on the armor of God, now when I get to verse 18, suddenly the question comes to my mind of whether or not Paul is describing prayer as the last piece of the armor of God. Is that what he's doing? I mean, it seems like the logical flow of his thought. He's even using some of the same language. He talks about the sword of the Spirit. Now pray in the Spirit. And, and if you look through Scripture, all kinds of other places, you see actions where prayer is also used, both defensively and offensively in someone's life. So it seems like a logical conclusion. And yet, having spent a lot of time in this passage this week and Listening to a lot of other people, I now agree with most commentators that Paul is not describing prayer as the seventh piece of the armor of God. And I'll tell you why. The simple reason, among others, being, if you notice, Paul does not connect prayer with any other physical piece of armor. 
right? He doesn't say, take up the, the knee pads of prayer or whatever it is. Like, there's no physical armor that he connects it to. So that's why it's assumed, among other reasons, that Paul's not describing prayer as the last piece of the armor of God. But make no mistake, that doesn't mean that prayer is somehow unrelated to the armor of God. No, very much on the contrary. Prayer is integral to the effective use of God's armor in the battle. And as I said earlier, essential to the armor in the same way that skates, the blades of uh, hockey skates are essential to being able to use all the hockey equipment in a way that's effective. Prayer is essential to doing this. Well, how so? Well, because while prayer may not be describing another piece of armor, it is a continuation of Paul's description of what it means to stand firm in the battle. It is a description of that, which you see at the beginning of verse 14. So what we know now, if if you look at it in context altogether, everything Paul says between verses 14 and 18 is actually all sub-clauses of what it means to stand firm. So when you come to that section, you could read it like this. Paul is saying there, stand therefore by fastening on the belt of truth. Stand firm by putting on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of gospel readiness. Stand by taking up the shield of faith in all circumstances. Stand firm by taking up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And stand firm by praying at all times. And by keeping alert, the the related command, which is also included there in verse 18. It's all a description of what it means to stand firm. So it's absolutely included in the use of the armor of God. In fact, when you think of the only other occurrence that I could think of in the New Testament, outside of the temptation of Jesus, where Jesus seems to be under obvious temptation, obvious distress, the the battle seems to be most heavily raging against him in the Garden of Gethsemane. What does he tell his disciples? Not to suit up and get on the armor. What does he say to them? Watch and pray. Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Or, or, or Peter, uh, in the face of persecution, anxieties, and cares, in 1 Peter chapter 5, be alert and of sober mind, he says. Your enemy, the devil, prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in your faith. And in the knowledge that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing some of the same kinds of suffering. Prayer, notes Clinton Arnold, is at the very heart of spiritual warfare. As it is the means, he says, by which believers depend upon the Lord and request his empowerment for themselves and for others in the body of Christ. He goes on, therefore, Paul does not present prayer as an additional weapon, but as a foundational and continuous activity that is crucial to deploy all of the armor and the weapons that he has just commended to the church. John Stott says it this way, Paul adds prayer, not probably because he thinks of prayer as another though unnamed weapon, but because it is to pervade all of our spiritual warfare. Equipping ourselves with God's armor is not a mechanical operation. Listen, it is itself. Putting on the armor is itself an expression of our dependence on God. In other words, of prayer. I like that. And maybe you wonder, um, as we're going through this, and you see the amount of verses Paul gives to this, why he's making such a big deal about this. This seems to be like of great importance 
to Paul? Why is he making such a big deal of watchfulness and prayer to begin with? Well, I think if the Apostle Paul were here today, his question, given the reality of this spiritual battle raging all around us at every moment of the day, would probably be why it is that we make so little of those things. Why do you make so little of them? For Think about it. Watchfulness, being alert in the midst of a battle raging around you, that's like of life and death importance, to be like alert and look at what's going on, not just chilling on the battlefield. And prayer. Prayer is, is our direct line of communication, our direct line of communion with the Almighty God of the universe made possible through the reconciling work of Jesus, which means our prayer is both our undeserved privilege as well as our access, our, our supply line to God's unlimited resources. Our supply line and access to God's immeasurable power. In fact, if you look at those two epic prayers that we have recorded for us in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, you'll see Paul praying for the believers that they would know these things themselves. Both that they might know, first of all, the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards us who believe, and then that they might experience that power of the one who can do abundantly more than all we ask or imagine working inside them. He's praying for both of those things. Prayer thus epitomizes what Paul has said in Ephesians 6.10. Be strong in the Lord, says Clinton Arnold. Because it represents calling on God to empower his people to fulfill what he has called them to be and to do. Are you beginning to see now why prayer is so integral to the effective use of of the armor of God in the life of a Christian, and why the enemy would be filled with so much dread at our consistent use of it. As Samuel Chadwick once said so well, Satan laughs at our toil and mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. I don't know. Um... It may seem to some of you still, even at this point now after having spent all this time here, that this is still all just a bit far-fetched. That, you know, maybe the Apostle Paul, he's well-intentioned, but maybe just like more of a military hobbyist with an overactive imagination. Uh, maybe. And yet, Paul's stated point from the very beginning of this entire letter to the book to, to the church in Ephesus, is that God's eternal purpose set in place before the foundation of the world was to unite all things in heaven and on earth back together in Jesus, a purpose that we've seen again and again and again, that God's enemy as well as the enemy of the church, the devil, is doing all he can, that he is set on destroying, that he's set on inhibiting and making sure doesn't come about, and he's been doing that since the beginning of creation. Again, as John Stott noted of, of Satan and his evil forces, he says, is God's plan to create a new society? 
then they, these forces of evil, they will do their utmost to destroy it. Has God, through Jesus Christ, broken down walls dividing human beings of different races and cultures from each other? Then the devil, through his emissaries, will strive to rebuild them. Does God intend his reconciled and redeemed people to live together in harmony and purity? Then the powers of hell will scatter among them the seeds of discord and of sin. That's what this battle looks like, raging all around us right now. This, this is the reality of the battle that we're involved in as God's reconciled people, whether we wish to be a part of it or not. And it's why Paul has been so desperate to both inform us, to let us know about the, the great danger and power of our enemy, as well as God's enabling strength and his armor to enable us to stand firm in the fight. It's why he's been working so hard to do it. We've taken the time to, to work through each piece of the armor, talk about how it protects us, how it defends us, and now today about the empowering grace, the empowering force of prayer, how it both connects us to God's immeasurably great power and also enables each of the other pieces of armor to be effective in the battle. But now, with all of that information in hand, now we come to the place where the only thing left to do is the only thing that no one else can do for you, and that is to put it on, which is exactly what I want us to practice doing together right now. Uh, you may have noticed or you will notice in our service playlist today that there was no video leading us in prayer and the reason is because today, prayer is how I want us to end our time together, end our gathering in this way, to, to make use of this access to God's power as he enables us to use all the pieces of armor effectively and to do something that maybe you've never done before or maybe it's been a long time since you've done, to put on the full armor of God. And so in closing today, what I want us to do first of all I want you to pray for yourself. I want you to open up your scripture and look at this description of the armor of God. And piece by piece, I want you to simply ask God to help you put on the armor today. Maybe you're saying, just praying, God, give me the helmet. God, give me the breastplate of salvation. Maybe you can pray it in a sense of, God, give me, would you protect my thinking and my thoughts with the helmet of salvation. God, would you guard my heart and my emotions with the breastplate of righteousness? Whatever it is. And then also asking God to enable you to be more and more proficient with the sword of the Spirit and to give you the, the desire and the ability to, to pursue that uh, proficiency more and more in your life. And then in verse 18, you look there, Paul tells us to pray earnestly like this for all the saints as well. So once you're finished praying for yourself, next, I'm going to ask you to pray for others. I'm going to ask you to pray for those in your family. Pray for your children. Pray for your parents. Pray for other friends. Pray for those in our church community, asking that God would cover and protect and defend them with his strength and his armor and enable them to stand firm in the battle. And then finally, in verse 19, Paul asks there that they would pray for him. I want to ask, if you would, that you would also pray for me. 
that you would ask that God would cover me, cover my family with the protection of his armor, and that in his strength I might be enabled to continue to stand firm and boldly declare the mystery of the gospel. So just to move things around, I'm going to speak our closing benediction over us right now, and then I'm going to ask you to go to that time of prayer, praying for yourself, praying for others, and then if you're willing to also pray for me that the protection of God's armor, that we would intentionally pray it on ourselves and that might become our practice to each day head out into that battle, not in a house coat and slippers, but with the full armor of God. So I'm going to speak that benediction and then let's go to that prayer together. As Paul writes at the end of Ephesians chapter 3, I say to you now, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, According to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, now and forevermore. Amen. Let's go to prayer together.